cricket is coming and it's time for a bat. We're going subs and bodies and we'll have a good laugh. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Get It Whacked, the Macclesfield Cricket Club podcast. Over the coming weeks and months, we intend to go behind the scenes of Max EC and meet some of the players and characters at the club, find out some things about them you never knew or most likely never wanted to know, and above all, hopefully have a few laughs along the way. Without further ado, I would like to introduce today's guest. This man is a former professional county cricketer, having gained a contract with Middlesex in 2010. He has played a lot of cricket, both in Australia and England, and has gone on to develop a reputation as a forward-thinking coach, working in recent years with the likes of Darcy Short, Sean Maksud, Sam Robson and Tom Banton. Alongside more traditional one-on-one coaching, he has seen his brand, Cricket Mentoring, develop from strength to strength. With a community of nearly 350,000 people and over 7.6 million views on YouTube, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom Scolle. Scholes, how are you? G'day guys, yeah, I'm very well, thanks a lot for having me. Not at all, it's a, it's a real pleasure to introduce our sort of first, let's say, external guest to the podcast for all the listeners here in uh, Macclesfield and, and of course uh, further afield. First question mate, how, how are things in Australia currently? Uh, mate, we're very lucky here in Perth, I'm based in Western Australia and I think my sister-in-law said a couple of weeks ago we, we're almost in the best place to be in the world with this whole pandemic and this struggle that the world's been going through where we're, we have we're sort of quite secluded here and our, our government put a pretty strict lockdown on travel and people coming into the state from, from very early on. The Australian government were onto things very early on. So we've actually been sort of back to somewhat a normal life a few weeks ago or over a month ago now and yeah, mate, things are things are going quite nicely over here, and, and I'm, I'm sort of feeling a bit sorry, and, and but hopeful for everyone else in the world, and, and great that you guys over in England have been able to get back outdoors and, and do some cricket recently. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, all of us at the club, and, and indeed just the wider cricketing, uh, you know, participants in England are, are really enjoying the ability to hopefully get back out there and do some training, and you know, we we hold out hope that we may be uh, maybe able to play some games uh, in the not too distant future. But it's great to hear, obviously, things are things are progressing so well for you in in Australia and, and Perth, as we've had some of our other sort of Australian friends on the podcast um, one of the things that's become quite clear is that lots of different states have have had different rules and and uh, I think one of our one of our other guests was saying he was pretty annoyed because lots of his mates were, were getting out on the golf course but he wasn't allowed so yeah it's, it seems to be kind of quite different over there depending on where you live yeah absolutely what the way I understand it is the when the states declare, so the national government will, will make a ruling and then the states, if they declare a, a state of emergency in their state, they then take over controlling the state. So when it all happened, the government set some rules and pretty much every state declared a state of emergency, which gives them the power. And so every state has its own government, its own sort of rules, and some are being more strict than others um, and some had more, yeah, they had to be because there were more cases in the bigger states. Victoria and New South Wales had more cases and they had to be more strict. Whereas over here in the West and some of the other parts of Australia were a little bit more lenient and there was no community transmission. So they allowed things to go back to a, a sort of, yeah, a bit more normal sooner. I mean, talking of kind of COVID and you said, you know, you've been able to kind of regain a, a bit of normality in the last few weeks. Would, would you say, um, it's had an impact on your ability to obviously to train and, and to coach. Uh, yeah, well, it's affected me on in both, as I'm sure it has everyone, if, if you sort of look at it from 
a bird's eye point of view and you can step back from the emotion of it all a bit. It's affected me both positively and negatively. Um, I was due to go to India in April with 30 cricketers from around the world. We had, a, I think, six or seven from England who were flying in, um, two different groups for 10 days of training and playing in Bangalore. And I put 12 months of work into it. I actually took a group of only 11 the year before and on the back of that, the success of that, we had a lot of people wanting to come. And so put this whole program together for two groups over, yeah, I was going to be there for 21 days and had to pull the pin on that three weeks before we were due to go away. So I had to then refund everyone their money and, and sort of recoup some money from India and, and so forth. And then I was actually due to be in England right now with my family and, and doing some work over there. We were due to be in England uh, from early May for five weeks. We had a couple of close friends' weddings and I had some schools booked in and some loads of one-to-ones and and everything and that had to had to be cancelled so from that point of view they were really disappointing a lot of time effort and energy went into them but what it did give me was a lot of time uh, stuff time that i don't normally have when i'm sort of quite busy with the business and, and growing the business and, and coaching and playing and so i was able to spend more time at home i was able to spend a lot of quality time with my young daughter and my wife and, and i love cooking i was able to get in the kitchen and cook and be home in the evenings as opposed to always being out coaching because that's when my sort of busy hours are. So it was it was positive and negative and it and allowed me to work on the business on certain things that I haven't been able to get to over the last few years as we've been growing and, and just doing stuff in the business. So I'm sure if everyone looks sort of looks back on this, they'll say they'll say it was really tough, it was hard, there were some real struggles, but at the same time there were some good things to come out of it. And I, I'm a very optimistic person. I don't really like to give too much energy to the things you can't control and the negative things so i just think oh well we missed out on going to india and a lot of time and energy went into it and couldn't go to england but how good has it been being at home with the family oh well that's that's really great to hear and and i think dare i say it my sort of viewpoint on things is, is very similar to yours i i try to uh to seize the the positives out of you know, obviously a very bleak and, and dark situation and and certainly you know from from the cricket club's point of view i guess one of the uh one of the positives to come out of this is is uh, is you know getting to speak to people like yourself and and just doing the podcast and and just kind of bringing a little bit of cricket uh, joy there. But away from that, I've done a, quite a bit in the garden, um, which is which has been good. We've we're enjoying I think twenty three degree weather today, which is probably absolutely freezing for you. No, uh, that sounds nice. <laughs> as well, you know, uh, having spent a bit of time in England, as as we'll get on to, that's that's pretty good for us. So my only my only regret is I'm I'm not out there. Uh, Watching someone score some runs. Yeah, and no, no doubt there's a lot of people, if they're allowed to be out, there's no doubt a lot of people walking around the high streets with their shirts off. When I when I first went to England, I was amazed. I was a pretty naive youngster, 20 years old, grew up in the middle of Australia in a small town, and I'd spent a couple of years in Perth. But I remember walking around the streets, the high streets, the main streets of like a, like a part of London, and there were guys, it was like 16 degrees or something. There were guys walking with their shirts off. And you would never see that in a, in a main street in Australia. And then as I lived, I spent seven, seven summers in England yeah, you uh, you get to know that that's pretty normal. Yeah, well, I can only hope that you you didn't take that uh, that behaviour back to Australia and get some some stern looks from <laughs> some of your. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> some of the people you live with. Well, I mean, that brings us nicely on to to talk about um, you know, get on to some cricket here. As, as much as I want to focus on you know on your brand and your coaching and everything, I, th- I think it'd be really great to to hear about your your cricketing journey. So the first question I would have is is what would you say your kind of earliest cricketing memories are? So my earliest this is the first time i've ever been asked this and i actually asked this on my podcast i asked this to all my guests and i interview all cricket people so 
my earliest cricket memory is getting a set for Christmas that had like it was in a Velcro bag and you pulled it out and it had three four stumps maybe and a pair set of bales and a, a plastic or a rubber ball and a bat and and playing I got a twin brother and playing in the backyard in a small backyard with my, my brother and my dad and I don't know we must have been about five or six or seven and and I remember my, I can't remember the exact details, but someone, I might have bowled the ball and my brother was batting and the ball got stuck in between the stumps. And I was devastated because I thought it was an out and he, and he thought, it, so anyway, so that's my earliest memory. My, my earliest memory of playing a game was my, my best friend in primary school. He, uh, he used to play cricket every Saturday and I would sleep over his house on a Friday night most weeks and I sort of started to get interested in what he was doing and I saw that he was having fun and I was 10 years old at the time and I started to take my white clothes in my backpack on a Friday night to have a sleepover and then the next day I'd wear my white clothes and if they were short on numbers I'd fill in and then eventually my parents, I'd just field and my parents sort of caught on to what was going on or they, I think his mum told my parents and and they, my parents said, do you want to play? Like, you can play if you want to play. And I don't know why I didn't ask earlier, but I, I played and first ball I ever faced was a juicy full toss and I smacked it for four. And I think I've been addicted ever since. <laughs> well, at least you didn't say you, you chopped it on and, and then you didn't play for five years. <laughs> no, that, I probably wouldn't be here chatting to you about cricket if that was the case. No, absolutely not. Well, I mean, it, it's always great to hear about, you know, early cricketing memories and, and stories, especially with, with all you Aussie boys. And one of the things that always comes up is very heated backyard cricket and I can only imagine with with a twin brother you must have had some epic battles over the years yeah we did we did however we're very different he's gone on to we're close um but he's gone on to be a, an electrician he's very practical he loves fixing things and building things where I'm hopeless at all of that so maybe around 10 or 11 as I started to be more competitive I was far more competitive than him and I would push myself harder he'd sort of almost give up when things got too hard or I started to become better so it wasn't your typical brother or twin brother like your Mark and Steve Orr that really pushed each other. We were sort of so different that when I got good, he just gave up and went and did something else. And then he became really good at things that I'm now hopeless at. So who did you play your your kind of your cricket in your, your early years for in Australia? Um, so I first played half a season for a club called North Canberra Ainsley in um, in Canberra. And then we actually relocated back to Alice Springs where I was born and where my family had been before we moved to Canberra. And I played for the next eight years from age 10 to 18 for RSL Works, um, a little little club. There's only four teams in the Alice Springs competition. It's a pretty small town in the middle of Australia. Um, and they, that was where I really learned the game. I had some wonderful older players who, who sort of had played in that competition for a long time and they were great. And I actually captained my A-grade side at 15 years old because they could see the potential and they, I had some good mentors and role models in the team to help guide me. So, yeah, that was where I pretty much learned the game. And then I would, uh, from I think under 13s, I started to get picked in the Northern Territory underage sides and went away at the 13s and the 15s for a couple of times. I think I went to three under-17 carnivals and four under-19 national carnivals because there wasn't a huge amount of people to pick from. So they'd often pick the best youngster to sort of 
give him an opportunity. And then they'd also were allowed an older player. So I, I went to, I had some really great opportunities with the Northern Territory. And then when I was 18, I moved over to the West Coast here in Perth and then started playing for Melbourne Cricket Club. Very good. And obviously, as you mentioned before, you, you came over to England for the first time as, as a 20 year old. How did you kind of, how did that come about basically? And who did you first start playing for when you came to England? At 18, when I moved over, I, I moved over a couple of days before I turned 18 to pursue a career in cricket. I knew I loved cricket. I wanted to do, be a professional cricketer and I had ambition to play for Australia and in the off season so I got into university I deferred that to, to pursue my cricket and in the off season I went up and played cricket in Darwin in, in the sort of top of Northern Territory so it's still um, a thousand miles north of where I grew up but it's in the same state so um, I knew a lot of people in Darwin and their season is parallel to the English season it's the opposite to the Australian season so I went up there when I was 18 and, and played in the in the Perth off season, played in Darwin, and then I went back to Perth and played the next season there. Then I went back to Darwin, and then I was sort of I was one of the best players, if not the best player in Darwin at that time. I'd sort of done a lot of things up there and and was still hoping to play for Australia, still ambitious to play for Australia, but I wasn't having the success that I wish I would have had. And a close friend of mine, um, whose brother actually had play, went on to play a fair bit of cricket for England. He said, oh, why don't you go and play in England? And then we found out, I said to him, oh, yeah, my dad's born over there. And he said, well, you could get a British passport. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, and that's what I didn't even realise. My dad was born in, in Surrey. And then when he was 18 months old, he moved to Australia. And yeah, a, a, a teammate and a friend of mine, he had gone and played for a club in the Middlesex League, East Coast Cricket Club in 2007. That was when I was in Darwin. And then as I finished my time in Darwin and came back to Perth for the start of the next season, Luke Towers, who had just come back from East Coast, said, oh, look, I reckon. And I started to talk about going to England the following year. And he said, you should go to East Coast. It's really good. It, it would suit you. I'll put them in, you in touch with them and blah, blah, blah. And one thing led to another. And I sort of signed a, a contract saying I was going to be their overseas professional for the following year. And, and so then, yeah, May, maybe middle of April or early May, late April, early May 2008, I flew to London. I'm pretty naive about the world and but very excited, very ambitious with my cricket still. And yeah, I ended up having five amazing seasons with East Coast in the Middlesex League. I captained them in 2010. We nearly won the league, which would have been the first time ever. And yeah, it was it was some of the best cricket memories of my life playing at East Coast. And um, how did you find kind of adapting to the changes? Um, obviously, you mentioned being a sort of a naive 20-year-old coming over. But um, in terms of the cricket, how, how did you find yeah adapting to the changes, especially in the pitches from, from England to Australia? Mate, it was tough going. Um I remember my not even not even the conditions, but the expectation as the overseas player that you're the best player, or you're the big dog, and you're the one getting paid. And I put a bit of pressure on myself to to do well. And I remember my first ball I faced in training, and they they don't, as you would know, you don't get all the first team players to training, or most clubs don't very often. And at my first training, I think five or six or seven of the best players, the senior players, had to come down to have a hit, have a bowl, have a bat, and and then go for a curry and. I remember the first ball I faced, I left on the middle, on like middle and off, and it bowled me. And I was, and then I was picking up my these plastic stumps, first ball they'd ever seen me face, and and this was on hard wicket in the nets. And then I, I got rock and rolled a few more times, and I walked out thinking, oh god. And I n spoke to those guys later uh, who became very good friends of mine. They were like, oh, we thought, what have we got here? And then I think I had two practice games, and I, I think I got under ten in both. And it's funny how things happen. And then the first league game of the season, we probably played on the best wicket I ever played on in league cricket in England. 
and I managed to get a hundred, and that was the first, yeah, for my first league game. And and I had a funny year that year. I got a hundred. Then the next three games, I got three scores under ten, and then I got another hundred, and then I got three scores under ten. So I think I struggled with with adapting, and I, I think obviously by not being able to get to ten on a number of occasions, um, I did struggle and and really didn't adapt very well. But I think when I was able to get in, I was really hungry to make it count. So yeah, it was in it was a never ending sort of struggle or battle of, of transitioning between Australia's wickets and English wickets, but also the format and how they play the game. You guys in England play the game very differently, different balls, different wickets, different field settings, different rules, etc. So it was just a, a, a huge learning curve and, and one I absolutely love. I'm really interested to to hear you talk about, obviously, the, the level of expectation and, and kind of the mental side of things, which I think it's fair to say in, in your later sort of career and, and turning to coaching is something that you you know as a, as, a, as a person as a mentor and a coach focus on a great deal as, as well as the technical side of things but you know as, as I was alluding to a, a number of our uh, other players that have been on the podcast and ex-professionals for ourselves and overseas a few of them have talked about the expectation and on them as overseas and the pressure that brings is, is that something that you found was easier to to adjust to the more you played in England or is that something that you've kind of you know carried Carried around with you wherever you've gone as as an overseas, if you like. I think it did get easier, and when I did well, especially in the, after that first game, it does make you relax and sort of make you you're not proving yourself so much anymore. And I I've played with and, and spoken to a lot of people over the years who have been overseas players, and they're fantastic players, and they thoroughly deserve to to get that position as an overseas player, but they couldn't handle. The expectation that came with it at that time, and and then the same, like I've known many stories of players that went to one club and it was con- too consuming, and they were put under pressure by people in the club, and and they really struggled, and then they went to another club the following year and they did really well, and things just worked and quick. So I think I was lucky that my first year and well, my first game in league cricket, I I did well, and that sort of made people around the club respect me and think this bloke's decent. Well, and that I think just allowed everyone to relax because I feel like. When you're an overseas player, it's not just the player, but it's the people who made the decision to get them there. It's the captain of the club. It's the president, the chairman, whoever that are desperate for them to do well. And everyone in the club are desperate for them to do well. And that's where some hate or some frustrations towards the player can come from is that everyone wants them to do well. And they everyone knows that they're sort of getting looked after, whether it's like whatever it is that they're getting looked after, that they want them to do well. And if they don't, people get frustrated. And sometimes that's vented in the wrong way. So I think in my experience, after those first few games in the, the practice games where I didn't get any runs, I, th- I think looking back, and I've really got to go back into it in my memory, is that my captain and the senior players were really supportive and they were sort of reminding me that it'll take a few games to get used to. It's okay. And I think that allowed me to stay calm. And at the time, like I said, I was a bit naive and I was a bit happy-go-lucky and I was just loving the fact that I was in London and living a cool life and living the dream, really, with no sort of pressure or like like pressure for work or pressure outside of cricket. And that just allowed me to sort of have fun when I was playing cricket a bit as well. And then, yeah, I did well. And so I think from then on, I was able to be accepted. I became one of the boys. And that's what a lot of people just want is they just want to fit in and feel like they're, they're, they're one of the, the sort of the team, one of the one of the group. And once I got my 100, I felt like that. Um, we put. I don't think we won the game. David Milan was actually playing in the opposition. I think he got 100 and they chased our score. But 
I think we pushed them and they were one of the best sides in the comp and that gave a lot of confidence and belief to the group. And to be honest, I look back at my beyond that when I got a couple of years older and we'll get into this shortly, no doubt. But um, when I played professionally, I didn't have the mental skills required to sort of perform at my best consistently when there was expectation and pressure. So I think in those early years as an overseas player, I was a bit naive to it all and a bit happy-go-lucky. But then as I got my contract and I started to get scared of losing it, I started to think about what people thought, that brought even more expectation. And then now that I've transitioned out of that and I've had a lot of time reflecting, I've realised that it was, was the mental skills, not the physical skills, the mental and emotional skills that let me down. And that's why I'm now so passionate about it. Anyone who watches my content over a period of time will see me talk about it a lot about understanding yourself and your mental skills and those sort of things to perform at your best consistently. Absolutely. And and as I alluded to in, in your introduction, it's it's why, you know, not just myself, but a lot of, of people would refer to you and, and think of you as, as quite a forward thinking coach, especially with, with the aspects of, you know, the mental side of the game. So it's it's kind of really he- good to hear the, the origins of that and kind of trace that back. But before we get on to that, I, I thought, as you said, it would be good to talk about, you know, your journey to professional cricket and getting your contract. Um, so do you want to you know tell us how that came about from from I guess the journey from East Coast to to your contract with Middlesex yeah look it's it's a cut it's two and a half years in the making so plenty of stories in there but to summarize it I had a pretty good year the first year I think I got the second most runs in the Middlesex league competition I think I averaged tick under 40 with 300s and like I say I was very up and down over those first nine games I think I got 300 in the first nine games and six scores under 10 so then it got a little bit more sort of normal, I guess, with some some starts in there and finished the season okay, tick under 40 average and, and at second most runs in the comp. So at the end of that season, one of my teammates was on the, he was the assistant coach of the Middlesex Academy and he was a young guy but had, was doing very well in his coaching career and he sort of said, I'll come back next year and I'll get you a trial at Middlesex. And I then had offers from um, a few cricket agents to go to other parts of England and other competitions. And I was really thinking about them and entertaining them. And, and I nearly went to an offer in Cardiff. And I decided, no, I'm going to go back to East Coast. I'm going to really enjoyed it there. I'm going to give it a crack and try and play for Middlesex. And as it turned out, for whatever reason, and I found out later on in the piece that Middlesex has a big or had a big staff and they couldn't literally, they very rarely had any trialists because they had such so many players. And and so that two, year, my second year in England, 2009, I was pretty much told all the time by my mate, my teammate who was in the academy set up, like, oh, I'll get you a trial in the next few weeks, I promise. I'll get you one. We've got some opportunities coming up. And it never came about. And I started to get really frustrated and and to be honest, I wasn't too proactive. I didn't go and I didn't go and seek other counties or really chase it that hard elsewhere because I wanted to stay in London. I wanted to play for Middlesex, home ground, Lords, etc. But at the same time, I still had ambition in the back of my mind to play for WA Western Australia and play for Australia. So in between the English seasons, I was going back to Perth, which was home, and playing grade cricket and having ambition to be a good player in Perth and play for Western Australia. So I was sort of hedging my bets a bit and as it turned out, I was having another good season in, in, in the Middlesex League. I think I topped the runs that year and might have averaged close to 50. I can't remember. But final second 11 game of the year, I got a call from one of the coaching staff and they said, look, we've picked you for a trial. If you were available, you'll get picked up from this place at this time by this person in a couple of days. And it's a one-day game against Gloucestershire at the county ground in Bristol. 
and obviously I was keen and available, but I thought, oh, it's a bit token. It's the last game of the year. It's a friendly. And so we drove up there and um, with someone I'd never met and who, who sort of, yeah, I got to know a little bit after that. And it was a rain-affected game. We sat and watched it rain for a while because it was late in the season. A number of the contracted boys were like, oh, let's just call it off. Who cares? Let's call it off. And anyway, fortunately for me, we played the game and it was a rain-reduced 26-over a side game. My captain, or the captain of the Middlesex side was Chris Silverwood, who's obviously now the England coach. And I think, yeah, Gloucester batted first. And I think they made, they made about 130, which nowadays in the 2020 is a terrible score. But back then it was 26 over a side. It was okay. But so I walked out to open the batting with a guy called Steve Selwood, who played a little bit at Derbyshire. And I played a lot of league cricket against. And I faced first ball. And as we walked out, I said, let's just have a bit of fun. And I ended up hitting the first over for 24. I hit three sixes over mid-off in the first over. And I ended up getting 66 off 33 balls and got out. And we won like in 12 overs or something. Selwood at the other end was going nuts as well. And and yeah, it was a career-defining, I suppose, or like career-life-changing moment because the next I drove back to London that night. And as I, the next morning, I got a call from the, the first team coach, Richard Scott. And he said, oh, Tom, congratulations on your innings. Coaches there were very impressed. And I'd like you to come along to Uxbridge and, and have a have a meeting with me. And I was like, okay, I've gone from trying to get a game for two seasons to now I'm meeting with the first team coach after one innings. And I was a bit like, oh, you should have given me a go before and, and blah, blah, blah. So I went, met with that Richard Scott and he said, look, we've been really impressed. We, we're lacking some white ball players who are dynamic and can take the game on a bit. And maybe there's a role for you there. We'd like you to come back next season for pre-season with us in a trial, come back a bit earlier. And, and so I went back to Perth for the next season with, with no contract in England or anything. And just the promise of, of coming back a bit earlier than normal. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, I came back, I think I went back to Perth, did okay. Again, didn't set the world alight, no sort of hope of a contract in WA at that point. So came, went back to England in, maybe towards the end of March instead of the end of April. And I did a month of pre-season with the boys and I was the only uncontracted player at the time doing this this trial or this this sort of pre-season with them. And, and yeah, then I started the first second 11 game. I got 48 against Northampton. I remember that game quite clearly. And then the next game was against the, a minor county side and I got 30-odd not out chasing. And I, I think I got them off not many balls and we won with a few balls to spare. And then the next game, I got a few runs. Um, and then... This is a pretty fascinating part of my life. Um, a few guys came back from the IPL. I think Shah, O.A. Shah and Owen Morgan came back from the IPL. Neil Dexter, who went on to be the captain that year, he came back from an injury. And that meant there was no room for me. I was uncontracted. And so I got squeezed out. A few guys came down from the first team. So in that four-week four period where I wasn't playing, I actually was involved in a pretty successful Bollywood movie. I was an extra in a um in a Bollywood cricket movie. So anyway, that that was amazing time and then I got an opportunity back with Middlesex and yeah, I was doing well. I think I got a 90 odd against a Lancashire attack that had sort of first team bowlers and a 48 or 40 odd against South Surrey that had lots of first team bowlers. I got runs against the Lancashire side that had a Simon Jones who'd played for England and I was doing really well and the defining moment was really when uh, that my batting coach and, and mentor back then, Mark O'Neill, he was the Middlesex batting coach. He said he pulled me aside one training. He's an Aussie. He really, he and I had a really good connection, a really good bond. And he pulled me aside and said, how are you going to make these guys sign you? And I, and I sort of naively said, well, I guess just keep scoring runs. And he goes, if you keep scoring runs, that's cool. But they've got no reason to sign you. They can keep using you. He goes, the way that they're going to sign you is by making yourself 
not available to them. Get someone else interested and they have to make a decision. And I thought, okay, no worries. And he said, have you got anyone you know that you can contact? And I said, well, I'm, I know the Hampshire coach quite well because he used to be an assistant at my club in Perth. And he said, give him a call. So I rang the Hampshire coach back then, Giles, and I, I sort of said, look, I've been playing second level. I'm going okay. And he goes, yeah, I've been following. And I think I was maybe averaging 50 in second level then or something. And he said, yeah, I've been following. Really keen to have you come down to Hampshire. So I rang the Middlesex coach and said, look, I'm off to Hampshire. I'm not going to, I'm going to go and trial at Hampshire. You guys sort of haven't really made any offers and I've been doing well and I, I want to go and trial somewhere else. And the coach, second team coach at the time, Richard Johnson said, look, Skulls, I really want to sign you. I've just got to try and get Gus over the line. Angus Fraser was the director of cricket at the time and just please play one more game for me. I've got you picked for next week against Gloucestershire at, at Radlett. Please, please just play for me. So I, I decided, yep, I'll play one more game for Middlesex, then I'll go to Hampshire. And I, I rang the Hampshire coach and said, look, I'm going to play this last game and then I'll come down to you guys. And as it turned out, all the stars aligned um, and I ended up getting 179 in that game and got out a few hours before stumps. I was pretty exhausted. I think I'd scored them all in the day. It wasn't sort of over two days. And yeah, came off pretty happy with myself. And, and then Angus Fraser walked in that, that evening and, and said, Tom, can I have a word? And offered me a contract. Then and there. Fantastic. I can I can totally see that uh, there's a, a lot of ups and downs through that journey. And it's it just sort of shows you the kind of the lengths to which, um, you know, people have to go in, in order to, to transfer from, you know, playing second 11 cricket to, to getting that contract. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sorry for the long-winded com- like answer. Hopefully I haven't bored too many people there. But it's sort of, that's a, I suppose, a summary of the journey and the ups and downs and the frustrations and the yeah, but I wouldn't change it. It was my the way I got there and I'm really proud of sort of hanging in there and the fact that – and I think you, you t- the timing has to be right. If, I, if I'd got an opportunity maybe six months earlier at the start of that season, then maybe I wasn't ready. Maybe I wasn't in a good enough place. And, and the fact that it was the last game of the season that year when I got the rut 66 off 33 balls, maybe that I just didn't really care that much and I went out. So I think everything happens for a reason and, and I yeah, I'm really – stoked that it sort of worked out that way in the end. Long-term listeners to the podcast will know that former guest and club celebrity Pete Langley has been running 100k in a month for charity. By hook or by crook, he's now completed that challenge, and after a modest target of £200 was achieved inside 24 hours, he is now close to raising £1,000 for Parkinson's UK. He would like to thank anyone from the Max CC community who has donated no matter how big or small the donation, each one is appreciated hugely. The fundraising webpage is still open by searching Langer's 100k on justgiving.com and if anyone was holding back not believing he would do it, donations are still welcome. I think at this point it'd be great to just sort of feature on, on a few of your stats and, and, and things from your time in England and, and, and maybe just look over the, the game that you, you mentioned there, um, which was the game that prompted you to get your contract. Um, so having a look at your, your stats on play cricket, um, you were sort of fairly kind of comprehensive uh, for, for most of the games that, you know, the seasons that you've been in England, especially um, in and around the time that, you you know, you managed to get uh, your contract. Um, so as per play cricket, you've played 119 games with 114 innings, 11 not outs. You've scored 4,926 runs with a highest score of 194 not out and you average 47.8 with 2750s and 1300s. And I thought it would just be interesting to, to talk about 
about you know very specifically the year that you got signed and, and the year before that um so in 2009 you played 22 games 22 innings and you scored 1053 runs um and averaged 50 and then in 2010 season you played 17 games 16 innings scoring 860 runs and you averaged 57 so you know as you said this is this is kind of the really kind of key time um, and and the numbers that you put on the board, I guess, is is what exactly got you got you to the table and and enabled you to make that transition. And then, Tom, I thought it'd be interesting just to kind of go over the game that you you mentioned, um, which was Gloucestershire versus Middlesex second eleven, um, and the game in which you got your big score. So this is from the South Division second eleven championship. As you said, it was played at Radlett on the 29th of June to the first of July two thousand and ten. Gloucestershire, I believe, batted first and scored 344 and then Middlesex took to the field and posted 563 for nine declared Um, and then in reply Gloucestershire then posted 296 for six so the match was drawn but um, as you said in in your innings you scored 179 off 186 balls um, what do you what do you remember specifically about that that game? I, I imagine, obviously, with the discussion you'd have with the coach beforehand, you're talking about going down to Hampshire. Um, I imagine possibly there was a sense of of kind of freedom about the way you approached that game, or, or did you feel you had something to prove? Um, do, do you remember anything about that? Yeah, I do actually. And, and sort of before I get into that, thanks for for doing the research and for sharing those numbers. I wasn't aware of that. I didn't even know you could look at that on play cricket. That's sort of I suppose a bit nice. I've been battling away in grade cricket here in Perth for the last few years, so it's quite nice to reminisce on the good old days. So about about that innings in particular, yeah, I think you're right. I think I had a, a really nice combination of determination to prove something, but also freedom because I thought, ah, oh, well, I've got another opportunity somewhere else. And I think I've looked back on my career and I've played my best cricket when that those two things combine, whether it's determination to sort of prove people wrong or determination, desperation to win and the team's not in a good position, but also freedom because my own results have been going well or I'm like, okay, last game of the season, who cares? Or something like that. When those things combine, I play my best cricket. So on that on that occasion, I remember going out, um, I think I batted three and we lost a wicket early. Maybe we didn't lose a wicket early, but I remember going out, the ball was moving around a bit. I think they had Craig Miles who ended up playing a bit, might still be playing. You're really young guy back then and... I was, I was a bit loose outside off early. I used to go after him outside off a bit. Um, and I remember slashing a couple past backward point and gully. And they had a couple of experienced players. It might have been Batty behind the stumps. Um, I, I, I can't remember exactly, but I was getting sprayed a bit. And I was just enjoying the contest. I was in a good space mentally and, and emotionally and, and physically. So, yeah, I was just enjoying it, just loving being out there and in the contest. And, and I had a bit of luck early, like I say, a few outside edges wide of fielders. And then things just clicked. It was just one of those days where I think I just got into a flow state or into the zone and I just was playing my shots. When you read it out there, I didn't even realise it was almost run a ball. So I remember playing the spinner with Freedom, taking the off. They had an off spinner. I remember taking him on, hitting him up, hitting him for a few sixes. And, and yeah, it was just a day that everything clicked. And I think it was just timing was right. I, I remember... Um, at one point, I was about 140 or 150 and going well and, and obviously in, in form and, and scoring runs pretty freely. And I was batting with a guy called Jackson Thompson, who was a very free-flowing player himself, a very good player himself. He came down after he hit a boundary and over on the side at Radlett, there was a park bench and Angus Fraser had this big folder out, was had some paperwork in front of him and 
Richard Johnson was sitting next to him and, and Jackson said to me, oh, they're, they're writing up your contract right now. <laughs> and I sort of laughed and said, yeah, whatever, mate. And I ended up getting a few more and then got caught on the boundary with a few overs to go. And, and as it turned out, they were. And that's something that's really that, – that memory of him saying that really stuck with me. And the whole process of – I remember vividly sitting in the chain rooms and, Angus, and Richard Johnson walking in and going, giving me a big high five like he does and said, well played, dog. Gus wants to see you out front and all the boys were like, whoa, contract and whatever. And so I sort of walked out the front of Radlett Cricket Club and Angus was there quite sort of um, straight-faced and like, well done, Tom, blah, blah, blah. Great innings. It was a pleasure to watch. I really want to offer you this. You've deserved this. You've worked hard for this. I want to offer you this summer contract and two years after this and and also you're in the squad to play against Bangladesh at Lords on, on Sunday. And so... I suppose I don't remember the innings that much. I remember going into the game with quite a bit of freedom, but also a determination that, like, I'm playing well here. You guys should be signing me. But I really remember the post-match and, and all that stuff around getting that special moment of, of I suppose, my, my dream as a kid was to play for Australia, but to, to get the dream of or have the dream come true of becoming a professional cricketer was, yeah, very special. Carrying on the story, I guess, you obviously then were in the squad to make your, your debut against Bangladesh and, and, and sort of how did it flow from there and and kind of the culmination of the next two years of, of being a contracted player? Yeah, so I'll try and keep it as brief as I can when we're trying to summarise a number of years. It was, um, made my debut against Bangladesh, didn't get any runs, I think I got three, um, and then I ended up playing another another five list day games that season. Um, and then I got dropped for the last game and they said, oh, their excuse was, sorry, guys, sorry, Skulls, Andrew Strauss is coming back into the side, so we've got to let someone out. And he was a pretty good player to get dropped for, I guess. And um, and I hadn't done that. Before. So I played. I think I played five or six list day for the Pro 40 games they were back then in that first season. And and I was just playing with complete freedom and, and utter joy. And I won the Middlesex second 11 player of the year for that season my first season with them in 2010 I think I averaged 60 in second 11 cricket and maybe 55 or something around there um and I I was incredibly just on top of the world really for that whole summer and then unfortunately for the for the club and for the squad Middlesex finished bottom of the second division so that was the real low point for the for the squad and and there was issues with the captaincy um Sean Udall had been captain and he got sort of stacked as captain halfway through the season and Neil Dexter took over and there was a lot of unrest within the squad and and so Angus Fraser he made the call he was director of cricket he made the call to have everyone back in London for a seven-week training camp in November and December that year and so I got my contract in in the start of July I had July August and September as a pro I ended up flying home and, and having um, most of October at home and then had to fly back to London for this seven-week training camp. And normally I'd just spend the whole Australian summer at home in Perth. And and so I went back to London for seven weeks and, and for whatever reason, I, I sort of made the, cho- the decision that what had got me to where I'd got to, being quite an aggressive sort of loose player, I wasn't going to be able to carry that on into first-class cricket. And so... I pretty much looking back now, I tried to change who I was as a player. I tried to change a lot about who I was. And, and I, I, I think that really impacted and affected me. Um, I started to second guess the balls that I would normally fully commit to and put away. I started to second guess whether that was a good option. And so that was the start of a, of a couple of years where I really just went away from what had worked till I got there. And so 
Yeah, things. So then I, I went back to Perth. I made a number of technical changes um, in, in my game and, and game plan changes um, to try and tighten up my game a bit, I, I'd, I'd call it, and, and make myself um, a, more of a traditional player, um, which I thought I needed to be. And then I went back to Perth, played the second half of the season after Christmas, went back to England. 2011, I went pretty poorly. My second year with Middlesex, or my first full year with Middlesex, went pretty poorly. Again, I, I was trying to make these technical changes that I didn't really trust, and I was second-guessing all of my instincts. I wasn't playing with the freedom that I'd played with the previous year, and I all of a sudden went from the guy with no contract who was just happy to be there and happy to be in the environment to someone who worried about, I've only got one more year, or who's getting picked, or who's doing what and I, my mindset completely changed and I probably didn't realize it at the time but looking back and reflecting on it I, I really know what what's, what went wrong and I then came back to Perth and and had a full season in Perth and I actually I published an article today on my website actually a little plug for cricketmentoring.com um, and it talks about this period and I, I played my best cricket of my life well there were two periods in my life where I played my best cricket that 2010 season when I was trolling with Middlesex and then this 2011-2012 season in Perth, um, I've got the most runs in the competition, three big hundreds and averaged 80, 82. And I'd, those technical changes I'd been making in the 2010-11 season in, in England, I, they started to click and I started to trust myself a bit more and, and things just playing over in Perth, playing here in Perth, there was no real pressure on me to do well because I'd had my contract in England. All the pressure was on when I played in England. So I could come back to Australia and just play with complete freedom. And I, I really did well that year. Um, but then went back to England in my final year, my contract 2012. And it was, it was just, again, timing. Um, we actually, I think the, the silly stats where we lost like 30% of days of cricket that year because it rained so much in 2012. That's no excuse, but whenever we were playing, we were playing sort of often playing, not whenever, often playing on, on tricky wickets and club wickets that had sort of had been under covers and stuff. But the facts are I didn't score enough runs. I didn't score enough runs in 2011. I had a poor season. And then in 2012, because the pressure was on me to prove that I deserved to sort of get my contract renewed, I just, I just didn't get it done. And across those two years, I played another handful of white ball games in the first team. I played sort of a few 2020s and a few more list A games, pro 40s back then. And I found it difficult to transition because in the second team, I'd bat three and knew my role and could build an innings. And in the first team, I'd go up and I'd bat six or seven and had to slog it out the park in my first 10 balls. And I just didn't feel like I belonged there. I didn't feel like um, at times I didn't have the belief that I was good enough to be at that level. And and so then, yeah, September 2012, Angus Fraser was it was the day of reviews and I went into his office in Lords and I was one of only two players let go that year. And, and I, I actually, like I said, I'd published some information about this on our, pod, on our website today. It was, I was actually okay with it because in my mind, I thought, well, last year I scored the most runs in the Perth competition. I'm, I was the best player in grade cricket in Perth last year. I'm just going to go back to Perth. And if I do well, I'll play for WA. And that had always sort of been in the back of my mind as a goal, like playing for WA, playing for Australia. So when I lost my contract with, with Middlesex, I then came back to Australia with the sort of high expectation. But then the pressure was on me to do well here in Perth because that's where it mattered. And England wasn't the, the sort of what I had to fall back on anymore. And that season I did okay. I got 300s, but just sort of was very inconsistent in between. And, and Justin Langer had become the head coach. And, 
and I just I just didn't do enough to stay at the top of the list and and then yeah subsequent seasons I just yeah again didn't do enough so then um, through through sort of that that pain of having my my sort of professional career taken away from me or, or not being good enough to perform it wasn't it was all on me there's certainly no hard feelings towards the people who made the decisions. If I'd scored more runs, oh, it's cricket's a statistical-based game. If I'd scored more runs, I would have kept my contract. It's simple, simple as that. But I, through the pain of not being good enough to sort of get it done, I, I looked back and I started to really reflect and I started to learn about learning and learn about growth mindset and constantly becoming better. And through my journey of trying to, learn I started trying to study all the best players and all the best athletes and all the best business people and all the best musicians and all the best anyone who's become the best what why are they the best and there's plenty of literature there was back in 2013 plenty of literature now there's plenty of podcasts plenty of everything video audio everything and I started to see lots of trends and lots of sort of common themes in people who were the best and I really realized that I lacked in I lacked in the mental and the emotional skills to perform at my best consistently and and in this article I've just published it's I spoke about how it would be a complete fluke or the stars would all have to align in my life and how I'm feeling for me to play at my best and so now I'm passionate about educating these young players who all hit a lot of balls and all can get technical coaching anywhere about okay how you're thinking and sort of what you're thinking and how you're feeling has such a massive impact on how you perform. And I hear from players all over the world who are good in the nets, but they can't transfer that into a game. And it's all because of, their, of the way they think about it and the way they make themselves feel. So that's sort of a bit of a snapshot of, of how my, my professional career progressed and then ended. And that's sort of the driving force for for the passion behind why I do what I do now. It's really interesting and, and, and very open of you to kind of discuss that. And I'm, and I'm sure everyone would appreciate you, you know, being so honest about it. Um, and I think it, it says about a lot about you as a person that, you know, you, your ethos, dare I say, is is kind of built around your own personal experiences and um, you know the challenges of the the mental approach to not just cricket to to, to succeeding in anything in life, as as you say. Would you would you say it would be it'd be fair to say that um, your sort of journey to, to coaching began in in and around that period, sort of 2013, when you when you started to think about the mental side of things? I sort of look back on my life and I think my journey as a coach started when I was a teenager and I. I was actually, I had a job as a tennis coach of five and six-year-olds. And so I think I learned a lot about teaching and communicating and trying to get a, a message across and reading people and and just things that I think a good coach needs to know. I started to understand those things as a teenager. And then throughout my time, when I first went to East Coast, those first couple of years, I had to do a, a fair bit of coaching as part of my contract, as, as giving back to the club. And to be honest, I didn't enjoy it that much. I saw it more as a job than, than something I enjoyed. And then, again, when I was an overseas player in 2013 um, at a club in the Surrey Premier League called East Mulsey, again, I was doing it for a bit of income, not because I enjoyed it. But when, when it really sort of started was in July 2014. So I, I played my final. lost my contract with Middlesex 2012. I went back to England in 2013, 2013 for one more season, primarily because my now wife was still in England and, and we, I wanted, we wanted to be together. So I went back and had that 2013 season there. Then we made the decision that she was going to move to Australia and live, live over here with me. And, and so in July 20, 
14, it was my first, it was my first winter off cricket in nine years. I'd played cricket all year round since I finished school. And so I, I sort of actually, my wife and I moved into a new place um, in South Perth, here in, in Perth. And I went for a run along the river. I bumped into my old captain who just retired and he was a close friend of mine at the time when we were playing, but I hadn't seen him for a little while. And I bumped into him for when we were, I was going for a run along the river and he owns the biggest sort of cricket retail centre and, and they've got indoor nets um, in Perth. And I said to him, oh, I'm keen for some some coaching, like I've got free time. And at the time I was I was playing cricket, but it was the off season um, and it's still at a decent level, first grade level. I was studying full time. I was working full time. But because I wasn't playing professionally, I was like, I've just got this free time. So I said to him, have you got any coaching? And he said, oh, well, I'll have a think about it and let you know. And then a few days later, well, that night, actually, I flew to London to watch my good mate Sam Robson make his test debut for, for England. Um, we'd played at Middlesex together. We lived together. So I went over and watched his debut, which was a very special moment to see him debut against Sri Lanka at Lords. Um, had a cool few days there. And then when I came back to, to Perth, I, I sort of got a phone call out of the blue from a father of a kid who had been given my phone number from Scott Muleman, my mate, who owns the Cricket Centre. And I, Scott sort of said, oh, look, you can use our facility, our nets at this, at this time. You sort of have to pay us this amount per session. And then this is what you charge them. And, and so I went into this first session. And again, at the time, it was for a little bit of income. But from the moment I did that first session, then something had changed in me. And I, I saw this kid, 13-year-old kid walk in. And I had 45 minutes with him. And I gave him a few tips. And it made him a little bit better. And I thought, wow, this is really powerful. I'm actually impacting and affecting his life and making him a better cricketer, which gives him more confidence. And the way he walked away, like how big and great he felt when he walked away made me feel good. And so I think I got a call again from someone else the following week and I ended up doing two sessions that week and, and both times I got an incredible buzz out of, out of the feeling of helping them. And and I was thinking in my mid-20s then and I still had ambition to play for Western Australia and Australia. I'd, I'd given up on England and, and wasn't in England anymore. But I started to really, really enjoy coaching and developing the, the young players. And so, and, and through that period, through that sort of 2000, end of 2012, 2013, started 2014, I'd been really learning about myself and about high performance, about success and what it takes. And I'd, I'd really understood that it's, so much is mental how you think what you think sort of often determines how you feel and how you feel determines how you perform so I started to think I want to educate these young players not just on their cover drive or the cut shot like they could well learn that but also on the mental skills so I started to print off articles I'd go on Crick Info or I'd go on anything I could or success.com or anything that I could um, to find content that could that could deepen their learning, and I'd I'd sort of print off articles and give them at the end of the session. Hey, I'd love you to read this. Let's talk about it next week, and and it sort of just all evolved from there. And then, yeah, I think eighteen months later, January two thousand and sixteen, I sort of founded my business, but I didn't launch it to the public until August two thousand sixteen because I spent a long time trying to get the website perfect. Yeah, it was all through my own struggles, and then yeah, I really started to get passionate about coaching when I started that sort of 
coaching journey in July 2014. That's uh, it's fantastic to kind of hear about you know the origins and and the birth of of cricket mentoring and and how you came to you know. Uh, to to be the coach that kind of you are now. Do you, do you want to tell us a bit more, sort of uh, all inclusively, about kind of what you do with cricket mentoring and and the kind of services that you offer, um, and and kind of maybe your ethos about you know what it is you want to deliver with that? Yeah. So so basically, the the, the premise of what we we're doing and what I'm doing, I've got a, a team now, but is I'm trying to be the mentor that I never had. So I look at my career and I think about why didn't I make it, and it was. Not because I, my skills weren't good enough. I trained quite hard. I could have trained harder. I'm not saying I was the hardest worker ever, but I trained quite hard. I put in the work. At times, I was really fit, but at times, I was unfit. And But I never had someone to talk to about how I was feeling or what I was going through or to ask advice. I, my parents were incredibly supportive. They like To give an example, they let me move away from home at 16 years old for six months to go and play in the Northern Territory Institute of Sport. They, they let me pursue my dreams to no end, but they had no sports experience themselves. I had no older brothers. I had no old, like, and I had some great teammates. Adam Voges, who played for Australia, was a, was a teammate, and, and Scott Muleman, I mentioned. But all my older teammates, they weren't mentors to me. They were just mates. And so everything throughout my whole career and transitioning from Perth to England it was all just figuring it out for myself. So I think that if I had a mentor figure like what I'm trying to be for these young players or these players I'm working with now, I feel like I could have sort of not made so many mistakes and I could have understood how to play at my best more consistently, which would have brought more runs and, and, and a more successful career. So out of my own sort of lack of a mentor I'm now trying to be the mentor I never had so I've been through like I said at the start about COVID something that I was able to do um, over the last six weeks to eight weeks during the COVID period when I was meant to be overseas and, and all my players were on a break from the end of the season I was actually able to spend a lot of time nutting out what who are we what are, who are we trying to help what are we trying to do um, what are we about and I've come up with this sort of mission statement I guess is we're trying to develop highly skilled, adaptable and thoughtful cricketers who strive to be their best on and off the field. Because a big thing for me is like I've become good friends with a number of, of sort of the world's best players. I, I sort of am, am fortunate to call sort of Chris Rogers and Adam Voges good friends and, and I know Steve Smith a bit. And at the end of the day, cricket's just one part of our life and everyone's a human being. So for me, I'm trying to not just teach them good cricket skills, but also teach them good life skills and, and help them live their best life, help people be happy. I'm incredibly lucky to do something I love. I'm incredibly lucky to do something I'm really passionate about and I get up every morning excited for what the day ahead holds. And I know a lot of people don't live like that. So these young people, they might not, these young people I'm coaching, I'm mentoring, I'm really confident that a lot of them are going to go all the way. I think I've got some fantastic young players in our programs but a lot of them won't make a career out of cricket. But if I can help them become the best version of themselves off the field and sort of inspire some some behaviours and some habits in them that they can take into for the rest of their life, then I think I've, I've done my job. So for me, it's, it's as much what I'm doing for them as a person as it is for what I'm doing for them as a cricketer. But I'm, I'm ultimately, I, I, one of my driving forces, I'd love to sit in the stands um, at Lords and watch watch someone that I've coached or mentored from 13 years old make their test debut or score an Ashes 100. Um, I'd love to potentially live the dream that I was never able to achieve through these young people. And so 
I'm willing to work sort of night and day to, to understand what it takes and help them, give them all the information. Ultimately, it's completely up to them. What they achieve is up to them. And, and I say to every individual, whether you would make it or not, it's not going to change my life. Like I'm just going to help you get better, but it's your, it's your life. It's your choice. So for me, um, that's what I'm trying to do. That's my passion. I really want to see these, these people thrive. I want to be a good role model. I'm trying to learn and develop myself. Every single day I'm trying to challenge myself and by, by doing that I'm trying to then teach them to do that themselves and, and, and actually live it, not just say it. So the services we offer, mate, we, we've got um, a lot of sort of one-to-one coaching here in Perth. Um, we do small group clinics during the school holidays. Uh, we've got online programs, which are sort of static video, sort of based curriculum-based content, um, learning programs that anyone can can sort of view and access at any time. We've got strength and conditioning programs that are that are developed by some of the best strength and conditioning coaches here in Western Australia. They work at the Western Australian Cricket Association with all the pros. Um, I've put together a batting basics program, which I think is excellent for any batters out there who want to understand the basic fundamentals of batting. Um, we've got a, I do a video analysis service where I, I, I give people feedback on their game, no matter where in the world they live. So I, I look after players, give advice to players from all over the world. Our, our free sort of YouTube, Instagram, TikTok content goes out daily and we're trying to just add value to people's lives. Um, this morning I, I went for a run at 6am and I, I sort of got on my Insta story and, and challenged people to, to do things that would make them a better person today. So not, it's not just always cricket, it's about them as a person as well. Um, and we're actually we're launching a few more things in the next few weeks. I've got Chris Rogers doing some 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 mentoring for us at the moment. We're doing some online small group stuff around aspiring cricketers, cricketers who want to be their best. We're, we're mentoring them. Um, I'm doing individual one-on-one coaching via online. I had a call um, with a guy in Melbourne today, a guy in Tasmania yesterday, a guy in New Zealand a couple of days ago. So looking after players, no matter where in the world you live, technology connects us. Um, and I think through this COVID experience, most people have realised that, yeah, technology is a great way to learn. It's, it's not as good as in person, but it's just about as, as good. And obviously, we're talking through technology on different sides of the world. And hopefully, you've got listeners, and I'll, I'll promote this to our community. Hopefully, there's listeners all over the world listening to this podcast. So, yeah, that's a snapshot of why I do what I do, which I think is important for people to realise and, and understand, and then what it is we do and what we offer. Fantastic. Lastly, do you, do you want to just give us um, some of the ways in which people can interact with you and find you online and, and engage with your content? Yep. Look, it's Instagram. We're pretty active on at Cricket Mentoring. YouTube, same. You just search Cricket Mentoring. Uh, we'll come up. We've got loads of videos on youtube tutorials etc um i do a a weekly vlog at the moment i did a daily vlog for a while and, and so there's heaps of videos on youtube tiktok i think it's cricket under at cricket underscore mentoring and then our website cricketmentoring.com. you can send us an email directly at info at cricketmentoring.com. so yeah we're all over social media that's something that i think we've done quite well i've really put a huge amount of time and effort in is through our content on social media so that we can grow our brand globally. I want to I want to be able to be a global mentor and help players all over the world. And, and like I said, I, I work with, I've got a young guy who's in the Hampshire under um, 15s or 16s squad who I work with regularly. And it's, yeah, something I'm really passionate about is no matter where you live, if you're keen and willing to invest in yourself, um, then we're here ready to, to help you. And like I said earlier, I've got a few other mentors and coaches who are on board who are excellent as well. So 
yeah, anything on social media, Cricket Mentoring. Now, I know you've uh, covered a bit of the answer to this question already, to be honest, but I think it's worth asking nonetheless, um, which is what, what do you see your kind of future goals are, both from a, from a personal perspective, perhaps with your own individual cricket and, and in regards to, you know, your brand and, and your business? Uh, look, personal cricket, I, I want to win, I wanna win a, a, a two-day premiership. I've probably got one season left in me. Um, I've, I've played 15 seasons here in Perth and never won the two-day premiership. I've won eight or nine white ball competitions and that's very rewarding but it's the two-day sort of competition that I'd love to win and, and contribute I'd love to score runs in finals and, and contribute to a win so that's that's from a personal cricket point of view but that isn't something that gets me out of bed every morning anymore it's not like it used to it used to be what drives me now it's about providing for my family sort of giving my my young daughter and, and our future kids the best possible life that they can have and, and instill the values and behaviors that I believe in and my wife believes in and, and, and just trying to grow, grow the brand globally, just trying to, I want to become sort of the most followed and the most engaged and the, the, the most trusted and the best cricket brand in the world. And whether we get there or not, who knows, but we're going to have a crack and we're just going to keep putting out content, keep trying to add value um, and help cricketers and people all around the world become the best they can be. Fantastic. Skulls, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure um, having you on the podcast and, and thank you for taking the time to, you know, to talk to us and, and, and tell us about, you know, your own experiences and, and indeed what, you, what you're trying to do with your business and your brands. Before we wrap up the podcast, have you got any closing remarks or anything finally you want to say? Thank you for having me, firstly. And, and if anyone is listening to the whole thing and is still listening, thanks a lot for, for taking time to sort of learn a bit about me and my journey. Um, I love listening to podcasts. I love listening to people's stories, but I'll never take it for granted that someone's going to sit through an hour of, of my story. So thank you guys. And, and I think I wear two wristbands around my wrist. One says back yourself and one says get it done. And they're two sayings that I say regularly. It's just, I think a lot of people doubt themselves and, and, and are they're, they're crippled by fear of failure or they're crippled about by fear of being judged. And I think life is too short to, to care too much about other people's opinions that you won't go out and have a crack and you'd much rather i think people would much rather when they get older sort of fail having had a go than wonder what if if they didn't have a go so for me whether you're on the cricket field or you're off the cricket field and it's in life it's, it's just back yourself trust yourself have a crack and then the get it done pieces around just put in the work there's no shortcuts to the success for me i try and get up at five most mornings i try and stay up till whatever time is needed, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and, and just work. I obviously have family time in there, but just put in the work. If you want to be great, if you want to live your best life, I think you've got to put in the work. So back yourself and get it done. Tom, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. And as I say, thanks for taking the time and uh, look forward to hearing from you soon. My pleasure, mate. Thank you very much for having me. And, and yeah, good luck to, to you and the podcast and your cricket club for the rest of the season. Hopefully you get some cricket in. Cheers, Skulls. Thank you.